Welcome to Points in Politics, our first pandemic edition. Normally this panel meets in the cramped quarters of Studio A at Trent Radio House here in Peterborough, and we do the program live to air over CFFF 92.7 FM. Then I upload a recording of the live radio show as a podcast episode the next day. But Trent Radio is closed, so we are recording this panel online via the WebEx meeting platform. So everyone is at home, either here in Peterborough or downtown or on the shores of Little Lake or out in the wilds of Orange Corners or up at Curve Lake if uh, Sean Conway joins us. The sound quality will suffer a bit as we're all talking into our laptops or phones instead of being on in a radio studio. This will be our new normal for a while. Now, this program usually dissects recent events like campaigns and elections and politics, political comings and goings, but these are all discrete moments in time that have a beginning and an end. This time, we're looking at a process that's unfolding all around us as we speak. This will be like commenting on a trip down a mighty river from the middle of one of its major rapids. Hard to judge what course to take and hard to judge who has the skills to get us safely through the rapid. COVID-19 has caught us all off guard. Back in January, it looked like just another bad flu season somewhere far away. Easy to dismiss. Then in February, rather, the news became more sinister. Now in March, we know we are in an unprecedented global emergency. This pandemic touches so much of our lives. Loved ones, children, elderly relatives, family, security, the future, our careers, our work, our communities, our passions, our arts, our dreams, our health, sickness, and death. I recall asking my mother about the early days of World War II, shortly before I was born. What struck me about her answers was the fact that her generation did not know in 1940 who was going to win that war. My sense is that for younger generations, particularly the millennials and Gen Z, it's 1940 again. Nobody has seen this before. There are no precedents. Nobody, well, going back to Spanish flu, long before their lifetimes, nobody knows what's going to happen, yet perspective is so important. Our parents or grandparents or great-grandparents were asked to fight World War II. We are being asked to stay home and sit on our couches. One thing listeners should know before we get into the rest of the conversation. After my first question to the panel, the first part of Tim Etherington's answer was lost. What Tim is describing is that his daughter is studying over in Japan, and there's been a great deal of difficulty trying to find a flight for her to get home. As you know, airlines are closing down. Finally, a flight was arranged, and she's supposed to be home by the 25th or 26th. Again, this recording was made on the 22nd. Joining me today across the internet is property manager and businesswoman Jenny Lancio, playwright and math teacher Tim Etherington, writer, editor and podcaster Donald Fraser, and political organizer and consultant Lauren Hunter. Welcome all. Thank you for joining me. So how are we responding to this crisis in our own lives? Oh. And uh, but she's she's getting on the plane on Tuesday. That's one of the priority routes for, for uh, travelers coming back to Canada. So it doesn't look like it, anything's going to alter with that schedule. And she's coming back and I've loaded up the freezer in the pantry and I'll be quarantining with her for two weeks when she returns. Wonderful. 
What else is happening out there? I think the uh, the way that we're dealing with it is, is changing immensely. Uh, originally, there was uh, a great deal. There was uh, there was panic. There was uh, there was fear. Uh, you know the 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 run on toilet paper, the uh, the run on foods. It really really showed a. Uh, a society and a civil civilization that was in full flight panic mode. Uh, right now, we, we've been, for the most part, uh, unless you're you're working in in healthcare or you're one of those people who are stepping up and and uh, and working in retail and making sure that we have food that we can put in our freezers and our trees back. Uh, I think the the full flight of panic has receded into uncertainty, dread, uh, boredom, but the it's changing as we go, and it's interesting to watch the evolution of how we're relating to this crisis because it's while it unfolded really, really rapidly, if you take a look back to, uh, to last Thursday, it went from something that is serious to something that all of a sudden shut down schools, shut down wide swaths of our, of our society. It happened really, really quickly, and now things have slowed down. And, and it's going to be interesting to see how we continue to respond to this as it rolls out, which may, in fact, be over the span of months. Hmm. Donald, to, to descend to the level of Picayune, uh, I shouldn't direct this question just at you, but could anyone explain to me why the panic about toilet paper? I mean, <laughs> like, of all the things I need to survive, I mean, they're, you know... <laughs> I, I don't get that. I think it was simply a case of, you know, somebody in line at Costco saw somebody else with three packages of it, and then it just, like, took on a whole life of its own. I don't know if there is any logical explanation to the toilet paper stampede that happened. Thank you. Okay. Very much. Jenny's right. It's a herd mentality. I've, I've been shopping a lot, preparing for my own quarantine. Plus, I had friends who were returning uh, from a two-week vacation in Mexico, so I was putting together supplies for their quarantine. So I've actually become quite a, a you know, almost a kind of Soviet-like experience, uh, going from store, store to store to find things. Uh, and it's interesting. I mean, I won't get into an exhaustive list, but those items which are always gone and the items which no one is touching, uh, you know, that it's, it's been quite an adventure finding, you know, that rare thing like, uh, a, a nice big bag of rice is actually very difficult to find right now. We have, um, my business partner and I have continued to look after our tenants. They're all seniors. We have about a 120 of them, the majority of them with compromised immunity and health issues, and they don't have family that can help them. So we've continued to go every way, every day disinfect our buildings, disinfect their doorknobs, and run any errands for them that they need done. We've kind of taken the mindset that it's better for the two of us to be out there than it is for 120 of them to be out there. So we've been picking up their prescriptions and getting them their groceries. And it's interesting. I think when you are stuck inside, you quickly um, become unaware of what's happening out there. Today, we got a list and Somebody said, so in the flyer from No Frills, this, this, and this is on sale. And then in the flyer at Blah Blah, yeah, you're, you get what you get. Like, you, you're kind of going to get what you get. If you want Cheerios, they're probably not going to be the ones that are on sale. You just are going to be happy with what you get. But it's interesting when you're 
removed from that, it's you pretty quickly lose perspective. Right. So I've been in the same situation uh, as Tim, and my connection seems to be bad, so if you can't hear me, let me know, uh, which is the new phrase I think we're all getting used to saying these days. Yes, um, yes. Waiting for my parents to return from Florida because they are snowbirds, like many thousands of Canadians. Uh, right. And so while Florida is certainly not as far away as uh, Japan is, uh, I will say that it has caused uh, quite a bit of anxiety. And I think that it's a whole different ballgame down there. Uh, whether it's in Florida or the United States, uh, they're, they're not the political leaders there are not addressing this the same way as it's being addressed locally, provincially, federally here. And the gap between the two is very stark. Um, thankfully, my folks are listening to CBC and our own government and listening to their um, advice and precautions and are on their way right now and have the plan to self-isolate. And we've already mapped out who's doing the grocery shopping and they will go right home and stay there for two weeks. But uh, that has caused, uh, yeah, a lot of anxiety waiting for that to happen. My parents came back early. They winter in Maui, so they came back early. But I don't know, Lauren, like if you're finding this, it seems to be that in the U.S. it is a totally different mindset as far as this is concerned. My parents were shocked when they got home. Like they didn't realize that things were as far gone here as they are find that in Florida. We have tenants that are coming back and when we're saying to them, you're coming from the airport to your apartment and you go in and you shut your door for 14 days. Like you're not exercising in the halls. You're not, you know, you're not doing any of that stuff. And they they don't realize that that's what the expectation is. Absolutely. It is. It is completely night and day between what is happening here and what is happening there and the mindset. And I think Um, I think there's also some differences perhaps in generations uh, that is compounding some of that. Um, There was a little bit of a bubble down in Florida in particular around, you know, beaches still being open and things like that. Um, And I I think actually once they get back into Peterborough and as I said, they're going to be very good, uh, responsible citizens, residents, and go home and shut the door and do that. But I think they will be shocked to see the level that it is at here versus what is down there. And I think, unfortunately for them, probably their worry and anxiety about their friends and other people who traveled or folks who are still down there, um, that's probably going to ramp up quite a bit uh, because I think it's just night and day between. I really Mm. noticed that, yeah. I think think that... Uh, and we're going to get more into this, uh, that, that our government has actually done a fairly good job. And those words just don't, you know, come out of my mouth very easily. <laughs> <laughs> We'd never accuse you of that, Donald. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I think the communication about the severity of the issue, uh, I think the instructions on what we should be doing, uh, have, they, they started, they started early enough, I think, and, uh, they've been consistent in the messaging. Uh, so, I think when when Canadians are are, are looking at their their public broadcaster and they're looking at uh, their their government and their leaders and and the, that messaging is consistent, which is you know go home, stay home if you can, uh, and if you can't, you know limit limit how you interact with people. Well, we we've been hit over the head with that over and over and over again. And uh, so kudos uh, kudos to to the government 
uh, and and to our media for doing that. Even if I do have some problems and that we'll get to with with how we've been looking at this in the media, uh, I think we'll get into that a bit later. Well, because him and I are neighbors, I, I stumbled over to his house the other day, uh, see how he's doing, and uh, Tim Etherington said something nice about Doug Ford. <laughs> I mean, I, I heard it. <laughs> well, what was I did, it? Well, no, I, I said that I, you know, the uh, provincial government broadly has done a fairly good job in acting quickly and communicating it. And this is something actually we know about, about both the Fords, both Rob and Doug Ford. Is uh, And Doug, Doug, Rob Ford had it much more. It's is, is actually a, a natural empathy for people. I think he, I think that's part of what was, you know, exacerbated a lot of the issues that Rob Ford had, is he wanted to be loved, right? And he actually had those feelings. Mm-hmm. D- Doug Ford has done a little more than the minimum. You know, he's listened to the people around him. He's taken the advice of the chief medical officer. Uh, and he actually has done a, a fairly good job. I, uh, you know, I, it's caught us all by surprise. And, and I suppose by, by getting out of the way and letting the experts talk, yes, that is a good move. I just want to go back Does it briefly. Pain you to say that, Tim? No, no, not at all. No, it, it, it doesn't pain me at all. If, when we get around to the education file, I'll have more pointed uh, criticisms about the way that's being done right now. Um, because we're, we're at a loss. We're at a loss. There, no teachers have been communicated. But I, before we get into that, I just want to go back to something about the United States, because we don't want to slip into too much of a complacency about being smug about our better reaction uh, up here, because the U.S. will soon become the world's hotspot, probably within the next week. You know, we, we, we can go off on a tangent as to all the reasons why and the failure of leadership there. But this is going to have a cascading impact on our lives in Canada. Because of all the supply chain, uh, and and once the supply chain starts getting disrupted from the United States, uh, it could cause some real hardships. And because this thing isn't going to end anytime quickly. And you know, you talked about for uh, past generations went through wars, and, and absolutely. But the North American experience of World War II is very different than the European experience or other places. It was an economic boom in North America. You know, we weren't bombed. We made all the weapons of war and made a lot of money off them and then got paid on the back end to rebuild uh, parts of the world that we that were destroyed by our armaments. So our memories of World War II, I think, are not really germane to actually what happens. You know, that that uh, great disruption to our society. I mean, I'm not downplaying the sacrifices brave people made during World War II, but as a whole, Canadian society basically went along the same as always. We, you know, we had certain shortages and rations, but mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. the post-war economic boom in North America was caused by World War II, and we're not going to have the same thing here after this. Yeah, well, the, the other side of this is, uh, so supply chain is, is one aspect of it. Uh, also, just the, the, the greater economic uh, impact of this. Uh, but there's also going to be the fact that it, if our closest neighbors have done a very poor job of, of flattening the curve, as we, as we keep on being told, uh, that this is going to become problematic for how long we end up in social isolation for. So if our, if our, if our closest neighbors are continuing to increase the number of cases and fatalities, it's going to lengthen the period that, that this continent stays on lockdown. And, uh, that's, that's problematic as well. What has COVID-19 exposed? I mean, this is a, this is a question that we could spend a few days on, but what has COVID-19 exposed about our way of life, our culture, our political leadership, our institutions, our healthcare system, 
And our level of community cohesion. I mean, you're touching on some of these things. Uh, a, a friend in Seattle, or in rather living in Portland, just as a footnote to that question, said, in addition to toilet paper runs, uh, pardon the pun, you know, taking things off the shelves, um, there's a run on guns. And I found that rather chilling. Um, well, it's not just in the States. My daughter's roommate, her family owns a Canadian tire, and their top three sellers right now are guns, ammo, and bear spray. Nice. In Ontario. Nice. What do we make of that? The disruption to our daily lives is going to play itself out for a very long time, and we can't predict how long. It's not going to be a couple of weeks or a couple of months. You know, the hangover of this – and it's going to be a hangover. It's fundamentally going to change uh, the economies uh, of the world. Part part of the reason is is that the wealth, this unprecedented wealth that we until very recently were experiencing, was based on trade. You know, was based right. on, on, on on trade and and financial transactions that happen in the in, in instant. And when that system starts to break down, we we really aren't equipped to deal with it. And so we run to our I suppose our, our comfort area, whether that be bear spray and guns or or Netflix or something like that, you know, if, if we were to, to start doing projection models of what might happen over the next six months, I, I hate to say it, but some of these scenarios are, are pretty bleak. You know, if we start having disruptions in the food supply and if, if the sickness starts getting involved in those who provide the public services like water and that sort of thing, uh, this, you know, this this could get a lot darker before we see any ray of sunshine. It's, 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 it's fascinating um, that that's not the news that we're getting. Um, so if you if you hop online and uh, you, you go on the social medias, or even you go to the to major media uh, sites, the the headlines uh, continue to be about the number of sick and the number of dying, um, which for the most part, are meaningless stats. Um, they talk about, okay, so 300 people have died today in X. Uh, what, what they're not telling is how those stats work, uh, contextualizing them, uh, putting them into, for instance, even the hardest hit areas, we're looking at well under 1,000 people per million who have coronavirus. So when, when you're throwing at stats like, Oh, you know, there's uh, 300 more cases in Spain or a thousand more cases in Spain. Uh, these aren't really contextualizing the numbers very well uh, and telling the whole story. We don't really know fatality rates. We're we're uh, we're reporting on 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 percentages where we don't have the denominators uh, to say what the proper fractions are. Uh, so a lot of uh, epidemiologists are looking at these numbers and going. They, they, they don't actually make uh, a whole lot of sense because uh, they're, they're only telling part of the numbers. The, uh, the Lancet, for instance, um, they, they talk about uh, mortality rate estimates uh, and uh, based on the number of deaths relative to the number of confirmed cases of infection, uh, which is not really representative of the actual death rate. Uh, um, same with, uh, with the number of people who have, who have picked up the disease. Uh, because the, the denominator is based on um, 
confirmed cases. So people who have been tested, and they're only really testing people who are in, well into um, past primary stages of, of contracting the disease. So, of course, our mortality numbers are going to be completely skewed. Uh, mm. and, and, and the trickle down, this is really strange. So uh, a lot of doctors and epidemiologists are, are looking at these headlines and numbers going, well, wait a second. You're, you're telling these very scary facts without actually contextualizing them. And when you're dealing with, uh, you know, hundreds of people per million, fear actually get this, or even I could pass this on to someone else, which are legitimate fears, they, they aren't contextualized in a way that actually makes sense when realistically we should be telling more stories about what the long-term implications are going to be on, on our economy, on our supply chain. Uh, these are things that we should really, really be scared about. Uh, so I'm, I'm not saying that we, that we ignore the severity of this of this illness, of this disease, and the spread of it, it's massive. But I think we're kind of reporting on the wrong things, uh, and, and we're, we're heightening up the, the instant fear factor, but kind of dropping the ball on some of the real stories. Well, now, some of the criticism, Donald, that I, I've heard, I, I must say from the right of the political spectrum, is that um, COVID-19 is being a uh, it's being hyped by left-wing media uh, for their political reasons. And I, I have to say, uh, and not to get overly political in my analysis here, but I have not been impressed by leadership at the right, hand, right end of the spectrum here. I mean, I'm hearing pretty silly things from McKay, from uh, Andrew Scheer, I mean, belligerent things, campaign things that I suppose are fair if we were in normal times, but for God's sake, the boat is taking on water. Let's let's forget bickering about the hairstyle of the first mate and get on with bailing. You know, <laughs> I think we we have to give uh, Doug Ford. If we're speaking about the right, we have to we have to give um, uh, Doug some some credit here because uh, he he's not gone down the alarmist route, nor has he no. uh, nor has he nor has he underestimated the impact of of this disease or, or the spread of it, um, and and he's done so. He's, he's showing up at press conferences. He's answering questions himself. If, uh, and this is, this is something that's really incredible. Cause watch, watch him in, uh, in Queens Park. Any question that gets sent his way, he deflects to, well, in the last little while, his minister of education. Uh, but really anyone that he can hide behind, he, he throws, uh, those questions to. He's answering questions himself. He, uh, he's being very polite. Uh, and professional with with journalists again something that he he's had a hard time with in the past uh, he's uh, he's even getting along with federal level politicians so yes when we talk about the right I'd, I'd like to point out that that yeah you know Doug Ford's doing okay that's when we can then change change the conversation to the narrative that's coming in from other people in the right particularly as we move further west. Well, I have to say, though, I think some of that has changed even in the last 24 hours. And this is the challenge, you know, even with us recording a show like this today, is that in three hours from now, everything we say could be out the window because we have some new information that changes everything. But just today I saw a statement from Andrew Shear saying, you know, we're, we're here and, yes, we're ready to work um, with the government to pass the legislation that's going to be needed to deliver things to Canada and there's a time for accountability and whatnot. 
and, you know, will be there to suggest things and solutions and ideas, which is very different than where he was even a day before. Uh, and I've seen now Aaron O'Toole calling for the suspension of the conservative leadership race, even though 24 hours before that, yes. out fundraising emails on it. So I think we are all trying to wrap our human brains around the speed at which this is changing. And I think I would like to see some of those folks get on board. And, of course, there's always room for criticism, um, but, you know, productive criticism, right? Solutions focused. How better to do this? Okay, you want to deliver X type of funding to this specific group? Well, could you broaden it and just implement a universal basic income uh, or or that sort of thing versus opposition as we've always known it? And I, I think they're getting the message. And. Uh, I hope more of them do. And it's a constructive, you know, it's it's Her Majesty's loyal opposition, right, in the truest sense of what that's supposed to mean. Um, and I, I think I'll see that. And I'll just throw in my kudos here, too, to Doug Ford, uh, as well as Christine Elliott, who I am so thankful is our Minister of Health in Ontario mm-hmm. uh, and for her level headed um, attitudes. And I'll even I'll, I'll back away a little bit from political leadership because one of the things I think that this is exposed about our way of life or our politics is actually how much we've agreed in Canada to put the health experts at the forefront. So, of course, it's got to be the prime minister. The prime minister needs to have a daily press conference. The premier needs to be out front and center. We have to hear from those folks, but they really have let the medical officers of health lead in so many ways and I, we just we can't take that for granted. It is so important. Now, I'm wondering, with all the the, the, the torrent, and uh, by the way, I, I don't see this uh, this exact moment as the time we stop talking about media or responses across the political spectrum, but I just wondered, are there any positive outcomes from from this new vantage point, this post-arrival of COVID-19, new views of our condition or of our politics? I think that will come. I I think that will be one of the results. But we're all in a state of collective shock right now. When we talk about the way that that people are behaving, you know, in a state of shock, you just sort of stumble through what it is you were going to do. You know, if I can get literary with you, I was thinking about Albert Camus' uh, La Passe, the the plague, which is about a city, a modern 20th century city, Locked down by plague, and that's exactly what happens: is people's personalities start to exaggerate, and and they behave as if everything is still the same, even while everything decays around them. So I'm not surprised that the you know the the, the right wing noise sphere is doing what it does. It's it's yeah. a political movement based on disinformation and, and winning the, the the next contest. However, you know it took two days. The Bernie Sanders campaign was right back at it, campaigning again. Uh, hashtagging attacks on Joe Biden and, and even one after Elizabeth Warren with a coordinated bot, you know, a coordinated hashtag attack a couple of days ago. You know, so it, it's not necessarily on the right wing. It's just the behavior yeah. of political activists. Um, and yeah. Lauren's correct. You know, I saw that with Aaron O'Toole today. Let's be honest. And uh, and then, you know, I think at a certain point stepped away from his state of shock and realized I'm actually a human being, and I'm a reasonable person. I'm going to start behaving like one. Yeah, and and to to spread some fairness across the political spectrum, um, uh, Jagmeet Singh was being a bit uh, nasty early on. Now he has 
But he was being a bit acerbic towards Trudeau and criticizing this, criticizing that. Now he has, of course, changed tune. Are we chalking this all up to, like, people not recognizing the magnitude of this to begin with? Like, or is everybody kind of getting a bit of a buy on their behavior? And now, like, going forward, we're hoping to see some people just being real people. Like putting down their political flags and let's like figure this out together. I mean, none of us or none of our leaders have the ability to say, well, the last time I went through a pandemic, like nobody knows, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I used uh, I used a whitewater analogy in my introduction for a reason. because I've had the experience of being in a canyon and, you know, class two whitewater, and we thought we had scouted it well, and you get around a corner, and it's class four, which means yeah. if you can make mistake, you can drown. And I, I think that's what collectively a lot of people are going through, that this, this rapid is a lot more bigger, is a lot bigger and a lot more serious than we had thought from shore. Well, yeah, and except it, it's, it's like going paddling within a map. Exactly. Exactly. Do you think, Jenny, that people will get a bit of a buy? I think there's a time limit on that. I don't know what it is. I think it'll start to run out. And I think that's true for corporations and and business leadership just as much as it is politicians. Mm. Um, And I think you're going to see people um, be less forgiving of business leaders who take the wrong actions during what is, you know, we don't have a map for this, but I just, you better make sure you're not put forward because I think people will be willing to not let that go. Um, I think after people get over the initial fear of the illness and we've kind of settled into this quasi self-isolation thing, people need to start seeing some financial support from their government because, when the hits the fan that nobody has any toilet paper for is when people's mortgages don't get paid and their hydro bills don't get paid and their utilities don't get paid and the small businesses are folding. That's like I've heard a lot of blah, blah, blah from Justin Trudeau and not a lot of like, you know, for like, for instance, like what hits near and dear in my home is the assistance that's going to come out for people that are self-employed. My husband is self-employed. Well, maybe we'll see that in May. Okay, I guess. Like, I don't know what, like, that's when people I think are going to start to get a little bit frustrated. You can have your press conference every day, but, and I, I can appreciate that rolling out financial supports for an entire country isn't something you just do overnight. But at the same time, I think people are kind of getting to the point where the financial reality of this is starting to set in. And nobody really knows how that sort of support is going to look. And let's be let's be clear. All of this is moving far faster than government ever moves on a good day. And I think I think you're absolutely right, um, Jenny. And I think I will say that eighty two billion dollars is not a small amount of money to put into an aid package. But I think it's going to fall short. And I think I was very. Pleased to hear um, Finance Minister Bill Morneau say this is a first phase yes. Yes. of a package. It's going to take way more. It is going to take freezing rent payments and hydro payments and all of that stuff because mm-hmm. no one's going to be able to pay for it, right? And if you exactly. – the cascading effects of that. Um, are, but it's 
trying to roll that money out. And I think the higher the level of government, the worse they are at putting money out the door. Uh, so the federal government, what I liked about the package was that they were trying to use implements that they that already exist instead of creating new, because the new things like the package that will go for your husband or for me, who is mostly self-employed, exactly, right? that those new things that is going to be a real struggle versus we already have the Canada Child Benefit, so we're going to boost it. Right. People already got CIST checks, so we're going to boost it. All of those make sense. Um, and as I, you know, I mentioned universal basic income or guaranteed basic income before, I think that's probably where we're headed. But because it yes. doesn't already exist, trying to create it right now in the middle of a crisis is that much harder. And then, you know, we talked earlier about um, and people getting sick and whatnot. I think Donald's right that we don't have the context. And the context also looks like how many healthcare workers are getting sick, how many farmers yes. are getting sick, how many federal bureaucrats are getting sick who are the ones who process payments and write yes. checks and yes. that money at the door. So um, they're they're stuck between using the mechanisms they have, trying not to make it too complicated, and yet I I don't I I don't have any context to say I've ever seen money roll out the door like that before. Well, and and the prime minister did point out even earlier today in his conference that uh, as far as he was concerned, there was more to come as well. That uh, that this was this was a first step. So I think I think we have as happens, and and because we have that infrastructure, as Lauren points out. Uh, it's easy to, to activate that on a larger scale. Uh, I, th I definitely think that we're going to be seeing uh, probably uh, um, a living wage that's, that's thrown out there for a one. Because uh, if we look at, uh, at musicians, at um, a lot of people who may not be paying taxes in, in ways that, that are of the mainstream, uh, there's going to have to be a way to address all these unique little parts of our economy that, that don't often fit together very well. Uh, so, yeah, uh, that's going to be small business owners. It's going to be the self-employed. It's going to be the gig economy. Uh, it's going to be people who are working under the table. Uh, you wrap your head around that uh, is, is hard for any, any government. Someone with a far bigger brain than mine is, uh, is going to have to explain, how does the government – Access all this money. Like, where does this money come from? I remember my mother talking about the Depression. And she said, you know, no one had work. It was very hard. The war came along. Suddenly, everyone had money. Like, how does that happen? Well, debt financing, and this is, you know, this is the, first of all, whenever this settles down, you know, the age of tax cuts are over. Um, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be looking at things like ultimately having to increase the GST again, um, because because all countries will be saddled with huge debt. Now the hysteria over debt that that gets spread by people who don't have the faintest understanding of how economies work is ridiculous. Uh, but we are going to see unprecedented levels of debt. And and again, to use the example of the Second World War, you know, uh, North America, particularly the United States, bailed out the countries of Europe after Second World War. Uh, because their ledgers were very healthy. There's no one, there isn't a country in this world that isn't going to be deeply in debt. Um, and this is going to become a rea an economic reality, probably that will continue beyond the time we're alive. Wow. And then are we headed to a new international monetary and fiscal framework? Uh, ah, yes. 
That's exactly it, right? Everyone's going to be in this boat to varying degrees and uh, uncharted territory. But I wouldn't be surprised if those conversations are happening amongst world leaders right now about looking forward. And Lauren, your your observation, what is going to change about uh, free market capitalism? Absolutely. You know, a lot of our, a lot of our wealth has accelerated over the last generation. It's speculative virtual wealth. You know, it's not the production right, right, of yeah. goods that gets sold. It's it's speculating on prices and, um, you know, the, the the massive amount, the massive fortunes that have been accumulated by people, and not just buying and trading stocks, but selling companies and valuations and IPOs, has created this incredible virtual wealth. A lot of which has been wiped out. Mm. Um, you know, and, and I, I don't know if you can start that engine again. And I really don't think it was ever a good idea to start that engine in the first place. It gave, it gave this impression that we were very well off when, in fact, the majority of people hadn't advanced much in 20 or 30 years. Okay. Now, there's one thing I wanted to, a balloon I wanted to float before you, um, because it troubles me. How do we react to the now ubiquitous slogan, we're all in this together. Are, are we really all in this together? Like, what about those living at the bottom bottom quintile of our income pyramid, precariously employed? We've talked about the renters whose tenancy depends on regular paychecks, the homeless people down on George Street, the soup kitchen users, people living in remote northern communities, the incarcerated. Like, It's, it's funny that my patience with that slogan depends on who is the person saying that yes yes interesting when i hear that you know coming from people that have like a double guaranteed income in their house and they're they're you know it it, we're all in this together i'm just going to use this time to read my big pile of self-help books and clean out my basement yeah that's great for you and your guaranteed income but the people that are making minimum wage that work in restaurants and have lost their jobs, the people that pay rent, like, are, are you in it with them? Are you taking some of your income and helping them out? So earlier in the week, or at the end of last week, uh, Gail Godot, that's how you pronounce her name, who plays Wonder Woman, got a bunch of her celebrity friends to do a uh, an online kumbaya version of John Lennon's Imagine and they got roasted for it. Uh, people were like, no, we, we don't want to see these filthy rich people saying, imagine no possessions, when you know, so many of us are either scared of being sick, uh, scared of where our next rent payment is going to come from, scared of, of, of where we're going to get our food. How are we going to wipe our asses? These, these people, are, they, they, were, they, they were unimpressed. They were not. They were not willing to hear we're all in this together unless people were really able to come to the table and, and provide solutions. Uh, Royal Bank announced that they were uh, that they were going to be able to suspend mortgage payments for a year uh, for a, for a month, and and they got roasted for it because well a month means nothing right now, uh, and and mortgage payments are are one thing, but there are far too many people on the planet for which. Mortgage payments were already a dream because yes. uh, because real estate was 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 out of reach. I don't get the feeling that people think we're all this together, but what I do have a feeling is that there's going to be a call for accountability to bring people closer together in in how we're we're dealing with this. 
Uh, and it's going to be really interesting going forward as our economy changes, how, how the ultra rich, how the billionaires of our society are, are going to be perceived uh, and how how they're going to uh, continue to interact with the rest of society because uh, as as things get tougher as our economy uh, continues to plummet and and we end up having to pay more in taxes to dig deeper to 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 survive to keep our economy going I think that there's going to be a whole lot less uh, forgiveness for for those who are not pulling their weight uh, particularly among the rich. But if we have the political levers available to us, actually do something about it, because the reality of human experience until very recently was that that's exactly what happened. There was a small coterie of very wealthy people who got to do whatever the heck they wanted, and the rest of the people fought over the scraps. As we're talking about politics, I wonder, so far, how is this playing out uh, on the in the political sphere, municipally, provincially, federally, what what internationally? What are we sensing? The irrelevancy of our day-to-day political obsessions, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> For sure. I mean, uh, so we we were up in arms about license plates. And that was that was uh, that was the most the most massive story for for a week. And and you look back, you know, just look back a week and a half ago, uh, and realize that the language and the, uh, the discourse that we are having is now thrown completely out the window because uh, it, it it no longer meets that criteria of crisis. And uh, when when we're dealing with a crisis, all of a sudden we realize how good we had it. And, and, and maybe how much time we were wasting on, on some of the issues that, that could have been left alone when we could have been diving deeper into uh, the elements of, of our healthcare system and, 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 and our economy and wealth de- distribution and social programs uh, and guaranteed incomes and uh, income discrepancies. Uh, and, and we're kind of realizing that maybe some of our conversations were a bit of a waste when we could have been focusing on things that, are now realize, we're realizing is more important. I think, unfor- you know, unfortunately, what times like this also do is they illuminate that when it comes to leadership, some people are natural leaders, like they just have that ability, and some people aren't. And even though you might get elected to a leadership position, whether it's municipally or provincially or whatever, that doesn't mean that you have strong leadership skills, you know, and kind of vaporizing into your house and not really saying too much of anything. You know, I, I think I think, unfortunately, for some people is that while we're not all riding that political train right now, it gives people an opportunity to say, yeah, that's not what's new. It's what's next. It's no surprise. It's the rapidity of how things have developed, too, you know, because. We're measuring people's reactions on a week, and I'm not giving anyone a pass necessarily. It's just it's it's astonishing, not just in the realm of politics, but in everything, to realize how rapidly our our, our context and our perception has changed on a daily basis, mm-hmm. and we'll continue to do so. And then we have these holdovers. You know, I mentioned, you know, I still don't know what's happening with schools. As I mean, obviously they're closed tomorrow, yeah. but I received word that schools were closing. Um, in, in the liquor store parking lot downtown, yeah. I got into my car uh, an hour and a half after schools broke for March break. And my first reaction was, why did they wait till after everybody left? Because had they told schools even at noon on the Thursday, 
we could have implemented all sorts of strategies, all sorts of stuff in place. I have no way of communicating directly with my students tomorrow morning. I could have had something set up for them that afternoon, the Thursday, if I had known. Now, I'm not going to go on and on about that rant because, you know, we, we have a very weak uh, education ministry right now in Ontario. But I think in retrospect, uh, even even as, as, as poor a minister as Lecce, would have had would have done it differently, but he was playing politics with it the Thursday before March break. I, I think that I think that they they may. This is the one area that I think that the Ford government may inc- continue to play politics. Uh, and I agree with you, Tim. Uh, with my wife being a teacher, I'm always surprised that I give her news on what's happening with her job, with her position, with her students before she knows it. And and that that is that is astounding and and it's wrong when when Twitter because you were getting it from Twitter <laughs> when 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 Twitter is hearing things before the teachers are uh, we have a bit of a problem um, right and and I think where we might see some politics coming in is in education so this has been the this has been the the big bugaboo for uh, for the conservatives for the last little while they they want to ram uh, that e learning down as quickly as humanly possible and. Should this go on longer than what they anticipated, and it will go on a lot longer than they anticipated, what we'll probably end up seeing is mandatory e-learning in order for kids to, you know, continue with their education. But here's the scary part of this. Uh, they, they're already going down that road. Uh, they, they've set up um, uh, the program where there's going to be more robust education uh, programming access through TVO uh, and online they didn't ask any teachers about this. Uh, they, they've, they've, not, they've not consulted teachers on, on any of this. We're going to probably see a rollout of, of e-learning in, in the coming months because you got to do something. Can I just say, I, 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 strongly, I strongly believe that they saw an opportunity, and that's why they delayed the announcement until after Thursday. And, again, I think given, given a second crack at it, they wouldn't have played that game. But it was pretty – and I can't say this for certain, but it seems pretty obvious that they were trying very hard to say, well, here's a great opportunity to replace two weeks of education with some online modules. And, and Lecce was out that afternoon saying, you know, we're going to we got exciting new things coming out. We'll roll out. Anyway, the thing that has really crystallized for me about what's happening in, in education in the province is a complete misunderstanding of how public education works. Uh, you have a minister who went to private schools and was a frat boy partier at Western, a premier who was a dropout, uh, an assistant <laughs> minister who never went to school, who actually never went to school. <laughs> um, and they seem to... My husband is like sitting right across from me, and I'm laughing because he went to Western. So did I. Jenny, I did. I did my undergraduate Western. I come from three generations of Western people. Oh, my there parents you go. Okay, there you go. I know go. Western very well, and I know a creature like Stephen Lecce, who partied at frats and came from a private school very, very well. Um, but beyond that, there, there's a misunderstanding of how education works. There seems to be this assumption that education is just about delivering curriculum, mm. that that all you do as a teacher is you, you pass on this wisdom to students who absorb it, and then you give them a test. Yeah. And, of course, education is a far more complicated uh, uh, field than that. And in order to... In, in order to do something in the absence of actual classroom is, is a real conundrum, which is why e-learning as it stands now and given, yeah. given technology doesn't work. Um, right. And I'm not really sure because one thing, if your listeners want to know about education, 
About 20% of what teachers do is deliver curriculum. Most of what teachers do is manage to get 30, 35 kids to actually sit still long enough, or most of the time, uh, and actually focused on one task. And I challenge any people out there to get 35 teenagers to try to do something for 75 minutes. If I may, on the bouquet side of the ledger, what have governments at any level done that uh, has been impressive? And if I can take advantage of the host mic for just a minute, I've been impressed with Diane Terrian, her, her presence online, her announcements. I don't know how much substance is behind what the city is proposing, but I, I've seen a few uh, of her uh, social media speeches and you know she's speaking to where people are at and i say kudos also i mean trudeau being on the radio every day i mean i can tune in and get the latest i mean he's he's not hiding any anyone else like what's going right about this well the shutdowns were a good call and this yeah. loops back to me saying it was good of the ford government to do it and the continued attempt if there's any way to flatten the curve and all the other phrases out there that we've all become accustomed to over the last week right. That is exactly how it's done, and 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 I, I give credit to the Ford government and the Trudeau government for moving rapidly that way. Which isn't to say there hasn't been mistakes along the way. I know that oh, of course dealing, yeah. dealing with the borders and the airports has had some hiccups over the last couple of weeks. My friends who came in from Mexico last night said it was pretty stringent and 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 very um, almost intimidating how they you know how they were treated when they got there and what they were told and that. So clearly those screens are are, are increasing very rapidly. I can give props to some, my own experience with education is with post-secondary um, education, but our daughter is home from Queens, and I will say that Queens has done a very good job in making sure that nobody's going to lose their year, that they are rolling out how they're going to finish up the semester, how they're going to do their exams, they're doing a really good job communicating with the students. My daughter has no complaints, and, and neither do we. I mean, it's kind of crappy that there's students that aren't going to get their graduation and aren't going to get all of those ceremonies that, you know, that they've worked so hard towards. But as far as finishing the education portion of their years of their year goes, I can say that we've been impressed with them. So that's been good. Okay. Is, is that yeah. it? Is that it? That, that the most important thing? I mean, Jenny and I said very similar things. And so did you, Bill, that you know, there's only so much a leader can do on a 24-hour basis. But we want to know that at least they're paying attention, that yeah. they, they understand it, that they get it. We see a huge contrast in the states, and I'm not going to waste the last few minutes of this show going on about that waste of, of, of airspace. But, um, you know, ways that this and, – and, and what Jenny said, you know, we said at the top of the program. I mean, I am obviously very preoccupied that my 17-year-old daughter is on the other side of the world right now. Her, I get that. her school has – communicated with us and been very very clear we've had we've had uh, zoom conferences with parents from because it's an international school of people from all around the world and it's given me a level of comfort somewhat you know uh, offers some relief to the incredible anxiety i feel right now incredible. I, think, I think situations like this i think it kind of boils everything down to the lowest common denominator and that's you know um important that we have our families and that um, we can all be healthy. And to be perfectly honest, like, I don't really care what Diane Terrian has to say. I didn't care what she had to say before. I certainly don't care what she has to say 
say now. Um, you know, I think it's, you know, looking after each other as neighbors and looking after each other as a family. And if we can get through all of that, you know, the schoolwork, we can make that up. The, the mortgages, we'll figure it out. I think making sure that our healthcare teams stay mentally and physically healthy and that we stay mentally and physically healthy and that Tim gets his daughter home. Those are the things that are important right now. Okay. Anything else that people would like to touch on as this unfolds? I think um, an interesting an interesting flip side to um, how politics is changing as a result of COVID-19 uh, and, and this overall crisis. So we were talking about how, say, with education, uh, we have uh, we have changes that might come into to effect uh, that were, for example, dealing with uh, with with the class with um, with mandatory e-learning and the fact that this is a convenient way for the government to say, hey, look, we rolled this out, it works. Hey, why don't we get why don't we keep it now? It, it's kind of a legislation by convenience. Uh, well, the flip side of this is if we roll out a guaranteed basic income, um, is there a chance that that infrastructure then stays as a result of how we respond to this crisis. Uh, I think that what we're going to see coming into uh, into this crisis and how we respond to it uh, is going to have really interesting ramifications exiting it. And, and hopefully some of the things that are put in place in order to better our society uh, to help bring us together to make sure that people are safe, uh, all the things that, that, uh, that Jen is talking about, perhaps – the, the end result is that some of these things will stay in place, and, and, and that's my big hope here. I think one of my hopes is not just necessarily government programs, but it's actually how we look at each other. So there's been a lot of media yes. sharing about, hmm, nobody thought that that low-wage person working cash at the grocery store was actually an essential worker. Yeah. Uh, and defining yes. yes. how we look at the people in our lives. and what is actually important, right? When you get all the way down to it, what are our daily requirements of shelter and food and community? And I'm hopeful that we will be able to collectively fund healthcare the way that it should be funded so that we are able to protect those healthcare workers with personal protective equipment when they need it and stockpile it in a way that we've got it there for a future situation uh, and that we have more respect for bus drivers and delivery people and yes. like cashers and small business owners who have flipped their entire delivery model to takeout and, and all of those folks um, who are keeping everything going. That's my hope. And, Donald, you remind me, I've seen two and heard from people that there are two organizations, at least in town, that are really hurting. One is Kortha Food Fair. Uh, they need donations and food and also the Yes Shelter. You've been listening to another episode of Pints and Politics. The voices you heard were Jenny Lancio, uh, Lauren Hunter, Tim Etherington, and Donald Fraser. My name is Bill Templeman. We'll be back on the air sporadically uh, for the rest of the uh, winter-spring season at Trent Radio. Take care.